This is the Gender Card Podcast from Griffith University's Gender Equality Research Network. I'm Nance Haxton, and together we will speak to the vanguard of remarkable researchers breaking down the issues of gender equality, women's leadership and gender inclusivity in all realms of life. As COVID-19 continues its relentless march throughout the world, so too is recognition of what is now becoming known as the shadow pandemic. Emerging research gathered from the front lines by the United Nations shows that since the outbreak of COVID-19, all types of violence against women and girls, particularly domestic violence, has rapidly increased. On this year's International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women on November 25, the UN is calling for a global collective effort as essential services such as domestic violence shelters and helplines around the world reach capacity. In some countries, calls to helplines have increased fivefold. Griffith University researcher and PhD candidate Elise Imre Papineau is investigating the importance of grassroots activism in this mix. Her research focuses on the cross-cultural experiences of activist women in Australia, Indonesia and the Philippines. I'm meeting Elise at a renowned gathering place for activists in Brisbane's West End called The Burrow, where she's coordinated an art exhibition highlighting the subversive work of protest groups such as Needle and Bitch from Indonesia and how art can powerfully challenge the status quo. Elise, thank you for joining us on The Gender Card. Hi, Nance. Thanks for having me. And here we are here at the Burrow, a very cool little underground cafe at uh, West End. It sounds like a popular little hotspot here. There's quite a bit of activity around. Yeah, it's a really great place for, I guess, people of the more alternative community of Brisbane. It's really been a wholesome place for myself to be since I moved here. One of my favourite spots, definitely. Good to know that West End still has a little bit of that underground movement as while it's being developed. It's still got a bit of that? Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, Resisting gentrification is not easy, but at least we have a few little spots that we can still kind of call home and have things like these art exhibits and, you know, live music and activities that cater more to, you know, the activist community and the more alternative community. So now that's part of the reason that we're here, because you've got this amazing art exhibition here. Now, Elise, tell us a bit about what we're looking at. We've got everything from bags with logos and messages and underwear with with I Decide, Stop Control. This is really a strong exhibition. Yeah, so this is a really exciting project that I've had the privilege to be working on. Uh, It's a collaborative effort between my own side project, which is like a DIY crafting community project called Punks for the Planet, and um, a a showcase and fundraiser for an Indonesian anarcho-feminist collective called Needle and Bitch. Uh, So they've been struggling a lot with with COVID to help fund their space and their activities in Indonesia. Um, and asked, you know, if they sent me a box full of their own handmade crafts and prints, if I could sell them on their behalf and just help raise a bit of money. That's how this was born. Yeah, I was extremely excited at the idea of that, and it was was a bit of a um, a hectic turnaround, putting it all together, doing some events. We did, like, in-house, like, printing workshops. 
workshops, we did radical bingo, we had like DIY badge making, we had so many fun events and it was really, really a great success and, and as you can see there's still a lot of the pieces up on the wall, which is so great because it not only gives visibility to that collective and the important community work that they do in Indonesia, but also just normalizing a lot of these political messages and, you know, the rights of women, reproductive justice, uh, we had like land rights, as well as all of my DIY shirts, which relate to a lot of Brisbane campaigns and like protests, rallies and movements that have occurred over the last year and a half or so. And this is where it links in with your research, your PhD research. Tell us a bit about your activism, because I think a lot of people would be pleasantly surprised to find that activism can become the subject of a PhD. Yeah, absolutely. Look, it's, it hasn't been easy. It's been mm. quite a challenge navigating both. I do consider them both to be full-time jobs, one <laughs> which is unpaid, which is the community organizing part of things. Um, but it's extremely rewarding. Um, so you don't sleep much? <laughs> I do not sleep much. I spend a lot of time between my campus office and my activist office, um, meetings, you know, organizing spaces, organizing events. It's it's a hectic time, but it's, it's what I love. I'm very passionate about it. So that also helps keep me working on the PhD when it gets really bureaucratic yes. and difficult. It's having that passion, knowing that this project ultimately will hopefully help to serve the activist community or like spread more information about the activist work of people in Australia, Indonesia and the Philippines and you know from a more selfish perspective it also really helps develop my own activist praxis and helps keep me informed on what's going on and helps refine my own thoughts about my own activism so for the next little while if people do come in they might be able to still score some of these you know really unique one-of-a-kind handmade crafts by the collective and, and support the Indonesian exactly Sounds yeah. like that's an interesting movement too where will this money go what are they doing there yeah well the, so there's collective needle and bitch is a collective that actually encountered right. yeah, a few years ago uh, when I was doing my master's fieldwork in Indonesia and they do all sorts of really really meaningful community work for their local community in Yogyakarta uh, and it focuses primarily on women's rights and feminism from an anarchist standpoint so no hierarchy um, you know no no ownership um, but they also do, they've been involved in a lot of like land defense movements locally, like helping the farmers of that region to fight against development of an airport. They do a lot of like community gardening. They do workshops for people, you know, how to make your own like menstrual pads out of recycled, you know, cloth and fabric so people can have access to doing things that are more sustainable, more safe, and that they can do themselves. So they're really into that DIY aspect, which is absolutely amazing uh, from my standpoint. It's my favorite thing. And they also offer like helplines and counseling programs and a space as well for the queer community in Indonesia, which is, you know, does face a lot of repression. And in fact, one of these artworks right in front of us, God Save the Queer. Yes. There you go. So, I mean, but it's interesting, isn't it? Because certainly from, I think, a mass media standpoint, we don't hear much about those alternative movements in a place like Indonesia. Yeah, definitely... Yeah. 
you wouldn't hear about them much for one because they face so much repression by the government and like censorship by the government um, as well as from the authorities so I think in part it's tactical to lay low um, because you know you, they've had their spaces raided before that people have been arrested before at events um, and to be so outwardly outspoken about things that are quite countercultural and so that aren't very accepted in society definitely puts a target on your back which is also why it's so important as an ally or like as a you know an activist in solidarity from you know somewhere from like Australia to be able to do little things like this that can meaningfully you know give back to their community and help them continue the work that they need to do even when they're struggling mm. especially during the pandemic raise awareness for for that important work Absolutely. they're doing these are all handmade by needle and bitch they use you know secondhand fabrics or like pre-loved fabrics um, and do all the sewing by hand. And they have a collection of these different like patches and prints that they use. So again, you see a lot of the themes here, you know, being pro-choice, you know, keep the government out of my bedroom, um, still not loving police, things about gardening, um, things about like consent. So really sex positive, really queer positive. Fantastic. It's just the perfect place for us to be doing this interview. It gives such an interesting context to your art work. We might go outside where we're yeah, a little bit away from the music and yeah. we'll continue. So Elise, we've come back out to the front of the borough, uh, surrounded by the vibe that is West End. So let's talk a bit about this research that you're doing with Griffith. A really interesting part has been looking at, actually through this lens of do-it-yourself, so DIY ethos, how grassroots activists have had to adapt their forms of resistance with the pandemic, so not only having to navigate, you know, the the public health measures, so like social distancing or you know lockdown and all this, but also the additional pressures economically um, and like emotionally as well. You know, not being able to work, so maybe not in one way having more time to do activism, which is an interesting element, but then also having perhaps more emotional burdens, more challenges. You know, at home mental health has been a huge part of that as well so looking at how people have tangibly tried to circumvent COVID challenges in their activism and of course a lot of that comes to like a digital shift so a lot of like webinars and workshops and rallies and meetings and everything going online which has its pros and cons but as well there's really clever and creative ways in which people have been still doing things on the ground but just trying to get around the restrictions <laughs> and a really great example of that is what we had here in Brisbane uh, when the um, the refugee the grassroots refugee movement was starting up we had these restrictions during lockdown where you could go out as long as you were exercising um, so we had people doing these exercise protests where they would like jog along and do little exercises around the block which was around this detention center at kangaroo point and that was kind of their clever adaptation to being allowed to protest and of course the state cracked down on that it only worked for a certain amount of time but then they improvised again and then it was okay we're going to start a rolling blockade and we're going to put all the right measures in place but we're going to continue resisting because we have to and then the covid rhetoric has been used definitely as a tool to censor activists. It's been used you know, by the media, by the government to say, no, you can't go out and do these things. But meanwhile, we can have a big footy game and have 10,000 people there. So it's definitely a bit of a, a bit of a weaponized concept, I guess, which is a bit unfortunate, but it's, it's bound to happen. 
that's done part that. of activism, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. And, and that adaptation. I mean, it's interesting yeah. to see how uh, common that is, even between those contrasting countries, how people have had to adapt to continue bringing awareness to yeah, their things. Absolutely. And food sovereignty, food justice has been a huge red thread between all three countries. And that's coming out more and more as I'm going through the interviews in Southeast Asia, is um, different groups setting up you know, guerrilla gardens, which is a, a big thing here in Brisbane. There's tons of them now that have popped up, which also help to produce harvests and, you know, bring food to other grassroots initiatives where they can provide hot meals to the community on, like, a pay-what-you-can basis, which is really great. So it creates a bit of a closed loop. And you have in Indonesia groups that are going into these rural communities and helping them do, like, vlogs and webinars to help advertise their different agricultural processes. So, like, bringing awareness to the work of farmers and trying to give them a bit of support while they're struggling over COVID. Uh, you've got these like COVID gardens that have been set up in the Philippines where they're growing not only like, you know, food and vegetables for the community who are struggling with, with food security, but also growing like natural uh, herbal, herbal plants and medicines to help with people who, you know, have fallen ill. So these really wholesome projects from guerrilla gardening to just like more people practicing gardening practices and food justice and food sovereignty, recognizing that when you're under this kind of stress from the government and all these additional pressures during a pandemic that you really need to be able to do something yourself and you know, kind of build that resilience and it's a really good community building practice as well. And what are some of the gender things that you've found there? I mean, what's, what have you found with the dynamics of female leadership, particularly in the Asian countries that you've studied? It's been incredibly inspiring actually in Indonesia and the Philippines to hear from all these incredibly powerful women and the work that they do despite having, I think, a lot more challenges that they face. Um, and there's been some just recently because I've been going through these interviews um, amazing stories from the Philippines especially in the peasant sector so there's um, a huge huge population in the Philippines that are rural agricultural workers and peasantry and there are lots of women like peasant movements that help to support those uh, those women who not only are you know providing food for for the country but are also having to do the brunt of the the domestic work at home and, and whatnot with all that unpaid labor um, and there's all these stories of women in those communities defending their land to the point where they'll be facing down paramilitary and authorities and they'll be held at gunpoint and they're saying no, like you will not take our land, you will not come into our communities. And there's some really, really stunning photos online of this. Um, so talking to women who have been involved in those movements, going out to those communities, it's incredibly inspiring to hear the kind of stuff that they do. And how that also ties in with this DIY aspect and like traditional art is women who get together to do like stitching and sewing and weaving and like these really intricate like banners that are all like patched with like different cloth like um, swats of, of cloth and fabric and painting and stitching onto clothing that they wear to protests and things that they can like sell online and use to fundraise and there's a lot of art practices in their creative forms of resistance which again is a community building activity and can also be a therapeutic activity especially when you're in lockdown but really ties into like this this feminine energy but reclaimed and used to 
resist. And I love, love seeing these pictures of, you know, these women with these like beautiful painted banners, uh, some of them depicting rural women, women that have been jailed or murdered through their own resistance, which is incredibly powerful to see and a bit heartbreaking as well. Actually quite difficult sometimes to look at this stuff and hear the stories. And you were telling me how there's a theme of feminist care that you've noticed that's come through. Can you explain that? What do you mean by feminist care? So there's quite a, a body of literature on feminist care ethics that I'm kind of just unpacking mm. gradually. Um, it's not something that I originally thought I was going to incorporate into the project, but through not only the interviews, but through my own experience being in these grassroots activist spaces, I've just found that care is a really central red thread to a lot of the, the practices and the activities that we do. So it's not only a care for, you know, whether it's the planet or a care for human rights or a care for animal rights, but also a care for our community and a care for, you know, our, our, our colleagues, our peers. And it also, to an extent, has to come back to, like, a care to the self. Um, and so practicing care is a guiding, I think, principle that does tie into a feminist perspective um, and it's not necessarily because care is a, a, a feminized trait but I think more so that women already do so much unpaid labor and practice like empathy in so many ways in their lives and doing grassroots activism and doing all this you know unpaid work is also a form of unpaid labor that we already do and often you see women in these movements doing a lot of the behind the scenes work, doing a lot of the organizing, doing all of the caretaking in the sense of, you know, cooking meals for people and taking care of one another and checking in and doing all these little things here and there to make sure that people are actually looked after. It's not just protests on the streets. Exactly. There's much more to activism. Exactly. As we've seen with the art. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's cooking for your community. Exactly, even that, right? And so you have a lot of women who are involved in these grassroots movements. Again, not exclusively, of course, but there has been a bit of a trend in my interviews where people have noticed that men tend to take up more like leadership or front-facing roles, even if there are fewer of them. And women tend to do a lot of the more behind-the-scenes work, a lot of the more, you know, admin stuff, communication stuff, and again, the, the care work. So making sure that people are fed at meetings and making sure that the space is clean and making sure that people have lifts to here to there and you know just even that just that process of checking in you know having someone after a really long week just send you a message and just be like hey you looked really stressed at that last meeting you know are you okay are things all right with you and it's also often the women who end up starting these initiatives like these um, you know like doing online like yoga classes or these like self-care workshops and a lot of the people I've talked to in my interviews on the topic of burnout and self-care and care for community have have mentioned these different initiatives that they've come up with especially during the pandemic to be able to maintain that resilience and remain involved in activism despite how difficult it is. Sounds um, like that's been a real similarity between the three countries that yes, you've looked at. Yes, absolutely. Well, what would be some of the differences do you think that you've found with women leadership in these different groups? That's a good question. I haven't really touched on that too much yet I think in my in my interviews. I think one of the biggest things, maybe so, not so much with female leadership, but in general with the privilege that we have here in Australia, is that we can do a lot more 
And yet, because we are in this culture that is a bit more complacent and a bit more obedient and a bit more stable, we often don't. Um, so I feel like that, that's something that I'm always confronted with when I'm hearing the stories of the grassroots activists in other countries. It inspires me, but it also makes me feel a bit guilty that we're not doing as much sometimes as, as others are, as much as we could with the privileges that we have. Um, but there's, there's a big emphasis as well on having to deal with domestic work and having children and being mothers in these spaces. So going out in, in these spaces where you're doing support work for these farming communities, having to you know, set up some kind of childcare you know, uh, some kind of childcare space or having someone there to help with actually the domestic chores in order to allow those women to come to a, a political organizing meeting, for example, and stay in their homes and cook with them. And that's a really wholesome part of it too, but it's something that maybe we forget that, you know, a lot of these women are, are mothers and have to balance not only, you know, motherhood, but also activism and their own work and everything else um, so that's definitely something that comes out in the interviews as well that maybe you wouldn't get that same perspective and have you found is there still misogyny in these spaces even though they're so feminine absolutely yeah um, I think this is a question that I asked all my participants is you know despite the fact that we may find these spaces to be you know more progressive and you know perhaps you know challenging the types of discrimination and oppression that we see in mainstream society, you know, are these spaces actually safe? Are they actually more inclusive? Are they actually more accessible? Or do we just, you know, assume them to be? And I actually found that it was it was much more, um, I got a lot more negative responses in Australia uh, from my participants here about the fact that you know, we, we do try to create these very inclusive, accessible spaces, but we, we really stumble with that. Um, there is still sexism, there is still, you know, ableism, there is still racism, there is still definitely, for example, in the climate movement, it's composed pretty much entirely of like white middle class people. It's hard to get around that, but it is something that we constantly have to work on. Um, whereas my participants in the Philippines and Indonesia more so noted feeling more included, more respected, more equal to their peers in grassroots spaces. Again, hard to know whether that's because those spaces are just m more feminine in themselves, but also a note that there are the types of like masculinities that are noticed in these spaces tend to be a bit different than maybe the norm. Where do you see this research leading to? How will this contribute to, to activism around the globe, really? You've, chosen these different countries? Yeah, well, I think one of the particular aspects of this project is looking at it through the lens of not only the feminist lens, but through a framework of do-it-yourself theory. So how does do-it-yourself, you know, manifest in these spaces? How is it practiced? How does it contribute to maybe a more flexible, adaptable, maybe, maybe a more safe and accessible space? Maybe not. I'm not quite sure yet. And do-it-yourself has been a really big uh, theme in like cultural studies and like music studies, but I wanted to bring it back into like an activist kind of realm because there's not a lot of studies that really talk about do-it-yourself in grassroots activism, even though to me DIY is a core element of being grassroots. It's, it's improv, it's doing direct action, it's being on the ground, it, it's actually 
doing it yourself, right? It's from the roots, it's the people, it's the community. Um, you know, without being led by the government, without having corporate sponsorship, without being, you know, an NGO per se, but just wanting to do what the community needs from the community. So bringing back that DIY perspective to see, you know, what are the red threads between these three countries, which are, you know, very different, but also have their similarities. They all have different recent histories of like of protests and resistance. They all have a different history with colonialism. Uh, they all have, you know, very different socioeconomic contexts, and they all have these quite varied social movements with different tactics and different challenges. So I hope that looking at these three countries and putting them in dialogue, you know, helps to, I guess, in a way, just raise more awareness about the work, like the incredible immense work that grassroots activists are doing, who are often overlooked because they're not in a more formal group as you know NGOs and not-for-profits are which also means they're more unstable you know the lifespan of a grassroots activist group is probably a lot less long than someone who has regular funding and a regular space and being really realistic about the challenges that they face and the fact that you know they aren't perfect spaces either they are flawed spaces but there's something that we can learn from them and ultimately that's where this feminist care ethics perspective comes in is looking at okay well how do grassroots activists manage things like burnout and like imposter syndrome and compassion fatigue and what could we learn in other spaces for myself in academia for people in other work environments and community arenas what could we learn from grassroots activists about how to manage those things proactively rather than only addressing them when they happen to us and Things like burnout, for example, which I have dealt with in my PhD, and I'm sure that you know most people have dealt with at some point in their life, in the academic space, at least in my experience, is not something that's really talked about until it's already happening. And I think that's a real, that's a real flaw. Um, and I wish that we could have more proactive tools to actually talk about burnout and like plans, like how do you incorporate the risks of burnout into your research design from the onset and you know when you're going through the ethics process for example to not only think about the risks for participants or the risks to the research but the risks to yourself because some of these projects are incredibly taxing emotionally and I know that my project often brings me to tears it's it's incredibly emotionally taxing and I love it and I'm super passionate about it but because I'm so attached to it um, it also really does burn me out and I wish that I had thought about this I wish that this had been discussed in the from the onset of my project design you know how is something like this going to take a toll on your mental health? You know, how are you actually going to navigate these different spaces and these different aspects of your life? And I wish that it was a conversation that we had more in those academic spaces because you have so many people who are you know, juggling the challenges of a PhD and also struggling emotionally. And then we have a pandemic and it's, it's incredibly challenging. And we just don't normalize a discussion around the emotional tensions of fieldwork and of research and I think that's a real shame because we're missing out on this sensitivity that's very real. Even really little things like sitting in a circle instead of sitting all in you know in a in a row with one person at the front and having name rounds and pronoun rounds and giving opportunities for everyone to, to you know to, to identify themselves and to check in about how they're feeling that day. Little things like that are 
very easy to implement and create a better sense of community among people and I just feel like that lacks so much in in academic spaces where we are we are kind of taught to be more individualistic. It's a very competitive environment and I wish that I had more rapport with, with my peers. Thank you so much Elise. It's been really fascinating uh, having a chat with you today about your research. Is there anything that you'd like to add? And just want to like shout out to all the activist groups here in Brisbane. Everyone who does grassroots community work, mutual aid projects, they are incredibly passionate, dedicated individuals, and I wouldn't be doing this type of work if it wasn't for the inspiration that they continue to fuel me with on a, on a daily basis. And for anyone who maybe is thinking about getting involved into activism, I know it seems intimidating from the outside, but we are actually very nice people. Um, you can always get in touch with me or you know follow my like my side project, Punks for the Planet. Uh, get in touch with me and come do some printing and make some stencils with me. I always love doing it. It's a real treat and it's a great way to get a bit more informed about Brisbane activism, um, about protests, about politics. So you're on social media, people can contact you there? I am on social media, yeah. yes. I am now on Twitter, which is very odd for me, but I am, I am, I've got a Facebook and an Instagram account for Punks for the Planet, so that's probably the best way to find me there. And yeah, definitely at any point, shoot me a message um, if you want to come in and learn more about DIY protests and activism and printing and grassroots initiatives. I love to talk about it. I would love to get more people involved in it. And that's all for this episode of The Gender Card. This podcast was produced for the Gender Equality Research Network by Nance Haxton, with production assistance from Michael Adams. Stay up to date with this Griffith University podcast on SoundCloud. Speak to you again soon.